A History of Live Sound with Chris Sound. This is part two of my interview with Bruce Mitchell, the musical and production godfather of Manchester. He is both poacher and gamekeeper, a musician and a technician. Bruce talks about Jonathan Richmond turning off the PA, his friend and business partner Martin Hannett, why musicians hate sound checks, and how the worst gigs are often the best gigs. Did you, have you ever, did you ever do a gig with Jonathan Richmond? Because Jonathan Richmond came to the, uh, the International a couple of times, and he came and saw a standard PA setup, and he spent the sound check having the boxes switched off till eventually the only thing that was working were the tweeters on the top and he was checking it from the front and that's how he did his gig because he was aware of this thing that an audience will come down to you and sometimes someone with that sort of stagecraft or stage feel would be aware of that but he didn't want any sounds that deviated from his attitude of it getting the room quiet and the way to get the room quiet is switch everything off <laughs> I read an interview with Charlie Watkins from when in this interview he said he started off building his PA system and he was building them slightly bigger and slightly bigger he really enjoyed it and then he started mixing I think it was the, there was the Windsor Jazz Festival. It was his sort of big famous one, and then the Stones in the park. Yeah, like he, he did some big gigs and invented ways of dealing with them. And and he said the moment when it started to go wrong for him was when people started wanting monitors on stage. Right. And they wanted to hear themselves back on stage. What 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 year was that? Do you know? Maybe sixty nine. Right. Okay. Ah. Okay. So he said at the Windsor Jazz Festival, there was a second tent where there was some music playing, yeah. and he rigged up a little relay speaker so he could hear what was going on right. in that tent. So he knew that everything was going okay. Yeah. So he was at the side of stage mixing the main stage. Yeah. And he had this little speaker, and one of the bands that was on heard this speaker sort saw it there it was like I want that I want to hear what I'm what I'm saying yeah. like, well no it's not you it's the other stage right oh. I'm, I'm I'm looking after two things at once yeah yeah and that was his and the monitor. guy was like well next gig make sure that speaker's got my voice in it ah. so he he put a speaker out with the guy's voice in it and then the guitarist turns up and then the bass player turns yeah. up and then yeah. the drummer starts hitting harder yeah and he said at that point it became really difficult it, it's almost impossible. You need this guy from Wakefield to come and fix it. And he said before that, to hear yourself on stage, everyone just played at the appropriate level. A balance, yeah. And the guitarist might be very quiet, and yeah. the, but that was what... A lot of the... Uh, Steve Wonder's band was like that. Uh, Bill Withers' band was like that. Uh, Curtis Mayfield, where they would play an internal balance, and it was always surprising how quiet it was. Uh, because the way they would listen to one another. But they'd come to that, I suppose, from instrumentalists from the jazz thing, maybe. Yeah. Well, you, the only way to hear yourself on, to hear each other on stage was to make sure you were playing at an appropriate level. And you could hear, the yeah. Ensemble. yeah. Yeah. And Charlie Watt said mixing, that kind of thing was great because as long as you 
scattered some microphones about yeah and turned them up and didn't turn one up much more than the other yeah then you got a really nice balance of things right but if you handed over that job that to the individual musicians your foot yes and you probably know that uh, there was some claim that the grateful dead's lot invented something called the balance line where they they do these gigantic gigs and they would have a, a wall of pa behind them on the stage. Oh yes, the the the, the wall of sound the, up there, and they were in front, and each one had his own his own mixer for himself, and the balance line stopped feedback from the this to the that. Uh-huh. It was a it was quite it was a very sophisticated thing at the time, but it needed that sort of commitment from a band like the Dead. They had a. An, a almost tribal attitude towards them and their people, the deadheads. And have you ever seen a photograph? I've, I have looked. It's like a legendary thing in PA circles yeah, yeah. of like, oh yes, you know, the Grateful Dead's PA where each person had their own wall yeah. of speakers. Near the, near the mic. And I'm assuming it worked. <laughs> and I've heard a couple of live albums of it in operation. It's uh, true stereo because everything is placed where you think... Yeah. Where you think it should be on stage, yeah. I guess. So, it, Charlie Watkins said it was about '69 that it became something that became a standard for bands operating at a financial level to be able to afford it. It was about then that some of the bigger bands started to say, "This is what I'd like." Yeah. And when I spoke to Phil Dudridge, who, who mixed Led Zeppelin right. in 1970, was he from the house? Well. He was standing outside of stage most of the time, but he'd right. run out to listen oh, right, okay. to the yeah. PA. Yeah. And he, he said they did a tour in America where a couple of shows had a mixing desk in the audience, and that was a, a great breakthrough. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, was, there, was there a separate guy to do it? Well, he would go out and do that. Yeah. And not every band had cottoned onto the idea of monitors at that point. Yeah. But what they did for Led Zeppelin was they used to use their old column speakers that used to be Led Zeppelin's PA, yeah. that became side fills. Right, side so fills, they'd, yeah. they'd put vocals through that, yeah. and that would be, you know, each band member would hear their own instrument through their yeah. amplifiers, yeah. and then side fills for the vocals, and Phil would stand out front and mix it. But he said within 18 months everyone had monitors on the floor. Right, that's that was, it, yeah. He said it was moving very quickly, and if someone came up with an idea, everyone would copy it. Yeah, yeah. And so for Charlie, that might be a, a, a job too far. I think he didn't like the lack of control because he was very interested in the quality of the sound. Yeah. And he felt that he lost... Being handed over to the musicians. He lost control of that quality. Yeah. Well, the, I could, would... the other analogy is like the man who defends himself in court has a fool for a client. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I know that Dave Mattox, the drummer, originally his Fairport Convention is astonishingly good musician, but seriously precious about every small thing. Mm. Like, you know, you weren't even allowed to pack his kit up, and he was a beautiful musician. But he, when he did a sound check, he would go to the desk and do the submix for how his kit was to be. Dave Pegg would play the drums, and Mattox would set the levels and the EQ, 
and that was roped off really that bit <laughs> uh, that was uh, and that's how it had to be uh, for wow. you know that being really precious about it um but it also is is heading towards getting it right but musicians doing it themselves is taking on too much work you've got enough work to do with getting up there getting through the songs in tune maybe in time and getting the set done and monitors everybody's got different attitudes so i would always i still do now I very often won't have my drums in the monitors because one of the things if you're playing four to six drums you don't play the balance uh, if you've got them coming through the monitors you, if you're playing a kit and there's different things going through a monitor desk it stops you playing the kit the way you would normally play the kit if you were in yeah. a studio or whatever you lose your dynamic yeah, yeah, yeah and, uh, and sometimes but in a studio like one of the best things that uh, Steve Street did with uh, with my kit was it was a take that was going to be on brushes and he decided to put mic here, mic there and then put loads of compression on in the room mm. and so and that created the scape of what it was going to be and he, he took that decision because he'd heard the way the brushes were working with the take and and, and that's what he set up and, it, and every now and again if I want to convince myself that I'm any good I listen to that so, <laughs> and it's, it's not me that's playing that well it's just that he's got a, a good sound on it uh, that, had, that has a reference to what your balance is if you try and find any live TV of people like Stevie Wonder did a, a Top of the Pops live and, it, and the band the music's playing so quiet that the balance it just it's rocking like fuck but so quiet mind you I do like big banging loud stuff mm. <laughs> was there a time that you remember them when suddenly people were starting to mic up the full band like all the drums and do you know uh I could probably find it in my diaries or me. You know, I file everything and I know all the gigs going back. But uh, I'm trying to remember a particular time. I remember it getting very neurotic. How if you've got a band that's sold out a gig and they send you their requirements and your production manager, maybe I was, or a promoter, you would, you would look at the rider and you'd try and supply everything that they're touring guy was asking for and sometimes you would find out really they would put stuff in there that they didn't think they would get just they, to test you no they were doing it because uh, if you if you're sending out riders to like 20 or 40 gigs you're asked for everything you can that will make an improvement if you're a sound guy you want everything you can you, and you would specify your outboards and and because I was also renting that sort of stuff out, I would buy stuff in at great cost. <laughs> the graphics and stuff like that, you, you'd buy stuff in because it was being asked for, so mm. it was something else that would go in the bill as a rent. Um, but you were not at the mercy of the sound guy because most touring sound guys would want to get a result even if the right stuff wasn't there. But it always got very hairy at sound check time, and I started to avoid sound checks, just because if I would be there and there was something that was needed, I would make a good effort to get it. Mm. And also, the sound check and the live gig 
is possibly the worst part of any day for the musicians and the team. First of all, you've got people in the venue that might have been working since eight, getting the stuff in. Then you've got the band's backline team showing up who have not eaten. They've been driving all day. Then you've got the musicians showing up for the sound check. They haven't eaten. They've been driving all day. They're doing a sound check in an empty room. How can it possibly be right? And, and then if you apply that and then start reviewing some of the great gigs, you'll find a lot of gigs where a sound check wasn't done because this broke down or that one, and then they got there only just in time to go on, and that was a great gig. Yeah. And then trace it back into stagecraft, going back to musical days, and I always think that if a musician is on stage and playing something, he's banging wrong notes left, right and centre, but he's doing this... <laughs> Take it back to George Formby. George. Right, so a smile will disarm. And, and the other thing that would sometimes you would see done in groups by the more mischievous members, you know, you do some wrong, things wrong, but you try and signal to the audience, it's, it's him, not me. There is that. <laughs> but the serious musicians, they really want to try and get through and get it done right. But they're not going to be happy ever, are they? <laughs> Occasionally they might get it perfect, but. And also, a band doesn't know that a good gig from a bad gig. They might have done a gig, and you go backstage and you'll see them ready to slit their wrists. They've, you know, they they're unhappy about every mistake that's made or whatever, and you could see them seriously depressed. And then later on, they find out that it's thought to be one of the best gigs of all time. Of course, the audience sometimes don't know if somebody's in the wrong key. I recorded a band called the Bundu Boys at Free Trade Hall. I just put cassettes in the out front desk. And these guys, an African band, I think from Zimbabwe, and they were a working act, they'd been playing for years, and they'd showed up late at the Free Trade Hall, and all they had was their instruments. Everything else was missing, and they, they went running on at 9 o'clock showtime, and just plugged into whatever was there. The drummer went on the drum kit that we'd left. And I remember watching this, thinking, wow, great gig, fucking brilliant. And then when I started going to the tapes afterwards, it was all to fuck. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like every now and again, there was two keys going. Every now and again, half the band witnessed a different time signature to the other time. They'd gone back to front. But they just ploughed on <laughs> and, and created a fantastic gig that didn't bear detailed scrutiny yeah. when you started checking the notes. I quite like that. Uh, <laughs> well, it, it's a moment, isn't it? it? It's something that if you go back and try and analyse it, then you'd be disappointed. But your memory of it is that it was a great show that like you gig, loved. Yeah. yeah. For gigs... Once you get up there and start, there's nothing that you should get worried about. It, you should try and enjoy it. And if the bum notes go in, it's all right. It's the way it is. Uh, I saw Winton Marsalis. You know, oh, yes, he's a trumpet yes. player. Even though he's a virtuoso musician and, he, and he's got a great thing about communicating music and his ideas, half his working year used to be working for the Cincinnati Orchestra and his speciality was the Haydn Trumpet Concerto. Mm-hmm. And he became very well known for 
his interpretation of the Haydn trumpet concerto. So a lot of time, the solo trumpet is holding the gig together. It's, it's, it's an, it can be a very neurotic thing for you to get through. Mm. And each half year, he used to have to take, I don't know, a week or two weeks off to change his embouchure for his jazz work, which was, had a different set of criteria. But because this guy talks about music and, and he can mentor very well, the cameras were following him when he went to Juilliard to talk to some trumpet students. And he said the turning point for him about being on stage and doing music was he was known for the Haydn concerto and every time he did it, he really wanted to do it as best as he could and he'd be ploughing his way through this and he, one night his revelation was, I'm not enjoying this because I'm trying so hard to hit every note right that the pleasure's going out of it and therefore, I shouldn't really be doing it, or I should be coming at it with a different direction. Yeah. Just try and do it right, but don't get upset if it's not right. And he was trying to get this idea over to young trumpet players. It was so important for him to have it spot on, because that's a young musician's attitude, uh, maybe a young sound guy's attitude. Yes. You, you want it as... Uh, and there's something coming... It's becoming inhuman. In striving for perfection, yeah, you actually take out any of the joy. You've removed all the joy out of the music by trying to play it right. Yes. <laughs> but that, I think that's maybe the when you work with excellent musicians and they've reached a point in their career where they can make that judgment and they can say, "Well, I'm going to play it like this because this has the feel." If I play it the way you think it should be played, then it's going to be very sterile. Yeah, but uh, my life won't be in it. (laughs) (laughs) There's loads of value judgments going on. There's loads of negotiations going on that you'll see a lot of time in Winston Marsalis' conversations about jazz. There's there's lots of negotiations going on, and they're happening in split seconds, and, and it's just the way it is. But the way music changes with each generation, where you, you start to get music selling a lot, made by somebody in a bedroom on his laptop, knocking out dance hits in your bedroom, mm. and then the way you put that up in live gigs. Uh, but all it's doing is following the sociology of the way people are passionate about music and they're most passionate about the ones that they've come to in the teenage years usually and musicians are similar there the stuff that they are passionate about in between like being a teenager and being maybe 29 30 that is a very lively vivacious period in a, a musician's and a fan's life mm. because every generation latches onto their own music and they will very often refer to previous things because maybe it inspired them. But that is going on every nine to ten years and and where you've got all these different um, markets for music. You've got dance music, you've, you've got the different types of trance music, electric music, then live, in, you know, live instruments. It, uh, but a lot, every now and again, it, you'll get the most important piece of music being sold there's something that's got a human voice in it or a song that has some almost 
anthem quality about it. Mm. And the way that songwriting comes about is, is also very interesting. But what you've got, it's a technical job <laughs> of trying to relate to that humanness and getting it out at the punters. Mm. Um, not getting your face punched in by one of the band's fans. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember also... At first, you'd be at a concert and someone would come up and go, Oh, it sounds terrible. And you think, Go away, I'm not listening to you, I'm, yeah. I'm in charge. Yeah. And when I got more confident, I realised that actually I'd engage with that person and say, Where are you standing? And they say, Oh, oh I'm standing over there by the bar. And you say, Ah, yes, well, if you can move a bit, maybe a couple of metres <laughs> yeah, to yeah. the right. Yeah. If yeah. you stand there, you should get a better show. you like, oh, oh, thanks. Well, there and, you are. You, you were being conscientious. And inevitably, yeah. it would be like the, the drummer's dad or something. So it actually always paid to be quite nice to the, the Yeah, because you, you, you didn't know who was coming up talking to you. Because yeah. not many hecklers have got the, the balls to come up to you and heckle you right off. It's generally because they've got a vested interest somewhere in who's playing. Okay, yeah. <clears throat> One thing I was intrigued about was you were saying about how Martin Hammett would come out and mix with and was was he mixing he, live shows? no he, he, oh, Martin wouldn't do for I wasn't sure if there was a crossover there between studio and live sound but no he, uh, Martin's thing about sound was very very severe you know he, he, he was at UMIST um, he was doing a chemistry degree which helped him when he really started to really take seriously take drugs, uh, but he could be very uh, single-minded, and he would sometimes starve himself just to save enough money up to buy. Uh, I remember him doing it for some quad electrostatic speakers, and and we had a firm for a while called GB Audio, because one of Martin's best friends worked at Quad in uh, Huntingdon quad an amplifier for yeah. so we started being being an agent for quad 303s quad 405s quad current dumpers <laughs> and and martin his thing about sound was very studious and obsessive and where he would try and investigate sounds this is quite a well-known story him you know he'd, he'd squirt aerosols to get a certain sound but he was like that all the time. He was like that um, with his drugs as well. But um, uh, he was quite well written up by um, Frank Cottrell Boyce for the screenplay of 24-Hour Party People. Mm. That portrayal by that artist, I think it's Circus, uh, well, it's a good indication of what Martin was like, but Martin was even more incomprehensible and enjoyed being like that. And, and he was... Uh, he was a humorist and his, he um, didn't say very much when he was doing that sort of work, but he would indicate that, uh, you know, no, no use talking to me, I'm doing this and this is, <laughs> I don't care who you are. And it, it, it would be that uh, sort of driving thing. And we had a, another firm, it was like a, an agency music association. And that was when Martin first started doing recording gigs. But he, he had, uh, I think he had a Rickenbacker bass, and he was really proud of a, an Ampeg bass combo he had. And this Ampeg, the amplifier section of it, 
twisted round. Have you ever seen that? Top Ampex, yeah. Yeah, And he's very proud of that. And I don't know if it's because of that gadget on it or the sound it, you know, the sound would be very important. He was a big fan of um, Walter Becker, one of the writers of Steely Dan. And we went to see Steely Dan when they did the the Palace. And I realised that Walter Becker behaved just like Martin, hiding back almost behind the PA stack. Which, you know, if Martin was doing any gigs, he would do something similar. You know, it's part of the, the friction between Martin and the factory gang and Tony, and it got so bitter. But the thing is, many years later, Wilson was the most affected by the dispute with Martin, because Martin's attitude was, instead of spending all that money on the Hacienda, they should be spending it on a fair like computer. And Martin wouldn't behave. You know, it, 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 the, the dispute was actually driven by the fact that Martin's passion was get, trying to get the music, the sound special, and which he did do. And, and his first gig uh, recording was for a, a theatre group in uh, London called Belts and Braces Review. And he, he recorded that EP in a little studio in Chiswick owned by Ruth Lowe and he was so neurotic about that because he was ringing me because he found out that somebody had borrowed his Ampeg (laughs) and and he he said listen you've got to go go and get find this Chris Gillen he's he's got my Ampeg (laughs) I can't do this (laughs) he could get thrown a wobbler and and his next gig after that was out of the music force office as well and that was um, Slaughter and the Dog single, I think, or it was the Buzzcocks spiral scratch. But Martin's drive was quite something, and it wouldn't, uh, it just wouldn't stop. It was fantastic. We met a band, a French band, in the Bourges Festival in the middle of France, and I think the band was called the Red Orchestra, and they were hot. They signed with RCA and they had it in their contract that the album had to be produced in Manchester at Strawberry, Stockport Strawberry, by somebody called Martin Hunt. And they didn't, RCA didn't know who he was. <laughs> and it was very important to... And the, the singer of this band was telling me, and he said they were so hot that they agreed to... The, Whatever the, they said. Yeah. <laughs> And the band went to Stockport to record their album. They'd never spoken to Martin. They get to the studio. Uh, I don't know if you ever went in the Strawberry Studios, but they get to the studio, they go in, they set their equipment up in the area, and Martin's assistant, Chris Nagel at the time, told them where to set up, and Martin wasn't there. And eventually, Martin goes in straight to the, uh, to the desk and it's just starts moving faces, not saying anything. And it's just him and the Chris Nagel, the other engineer. And there's this band in the, in the room, not knowing what's going on. And, and there's a famous producer there, completely ignoring them. They've got a microphone, and so the band inside could hear anything going on uh, inside the booth, and there's nothing going on. It's just Martin, 
And it goes on for a part. He said it went on for something like an hour, two hours, this. <laughs> no noise. Then all of a sudden, Martin stops and says to Chris, I don't know what it is. Me teeth itch. Me teeth itch. And the band could hear this, but they're French. And only the singers spoke English. And, and they're, they're completely overawed by the whole thing. And... What did he say? What did he say? I, said, <laughs> I don't know. He just said, his teeth itch. <laughs> that was the first words out of Matthew, which is very, very typical of the way he would be isolated in his head. As yeah. The only thing he's got to listen to is, or point out where no noise was going. It was just some moving faders and doing EQs. And oh... I don't think the album, you know, the, the album came out, I don't think it was for Jeff, but uh, when we bumped into him, the, the album was just coming out, that he was uh, excited, the fact that we knew Martin Hammett, <laughs> and, and my partner, then he had, had fired him <laughs> the, the week before that. <laughs> but a lot of talents do behave in a strange way. But he was, he was a lot of fun, very funny man, but... He was oblique. <laughs> I lived with him and uh, it was hard to get the rent out of him. <laughs> he was saving up for another piece of... Piece of equipment. Yeah, very important to him. So you can see why it would be important for a hundred grand not to go to a club and go towards a Fairlight computer. Yeah. And many years later, Wilson said, we did the wrong thing, we should have bought Martin that Fairlight computer and it had been a very bitter situation between seriously bitter and when Tony was dying and we wanted to organise him to be buried somewhere he wanted he wanted to be buried near Martin and Martin didn't even have a, a tombstone because his wife had we don't know what happened to the money then but it was important Wilson wanted to be it shows you about how Wilson would care about talent and the culture of of creativity. No, so we've digressed again now. <laughs> where if we just try to make a linear history, then it doesn't really allow you to follow paths down slight rabbit holes. Yeah, but he, I have interviews of people who've talked about the professionalisation of PA where it moved from very sort of rock and roll Yeah, I, I, used, to, I used to own PAs and uh, the lighting aspect of what we did made money the, the PA side of it lost money because in PA hire and doing tours with PA is it's very hard the housekeeping on it has to be so on the case every microphone um, lead that requires repair is it's a tenor that you don't realize uh, the subtext of financing pa requires such a lot of detailed attention by really conscientious guys Mm. and uh, there's not that many of them that that conscientious you've really got to sit on it all the time and uh, I, i flogged the pa side of it just because um Losing money didn't suit me in that. And I just, I just wanted to be a musician. Didn't, didn't really want to do anything else. Uh, but you, if you are a musician, you've got to find all sorts of other streams. 
uh, I've done a, a studio edit this morning on Zoom with Keir. Do you know Keir Stewart? Oh, I know Keir, yes. Yeah. yes. Uh, all I do is he just throws it up on screen. I tell him we want to glue this bit of music to create a code out of it. And he can just do it, just like that. <laughs> he, he got his van round to Vinny's uh, uh, either yesterday or the day before to get Vin doing something in his house. So it's great, it's moving this way. You can make whole albums and not leave your kitchen. Uh, well, I think we've probably got quite a nice little segue there because we've started from pre-PA... Yeah. We've got a little bit about the early days and when it was basically vocal amplification and a little bit into the 70s of you know, adding more microphones to the mix, as it were. Yeah. And then in the 80s, well, what sort of year did you stop wanting to own PA roughly? Was it 90s or...? Uh, maybe. Because I was very often a, a, a production manager or a production designer, I would just bring people I knew in. Harry DeMatt we used for a long time because he did touring stuff with the Albertos. I would very often refer somebody to another PA firm. I, didn't, I just wanted to be the production manager. So eventually I ended up in staging and barriers and uh, that sort of suits me, you know. The business has collapsed, but I've got a depot full of scrap metal that eventually will go out and work, or it won't work. But for a long time, I owned a, a big Bose PA, which we'd bought for the Albertos, and we, we rented that out, and that went out on a lot of European tours after the Albertos finished, and my friends ran it. But um, it was very noticeable with PA. You've got to have that housekeeping attitude sat on what is very valuable equipment to fix, you know. You, you, yeah. The guy who owns Star Hire, he used to be the sound engineer for Toots and the Matals back in the day. Oh, the Star, original Star Hire guy was called Roger Barrett. And Roger Barrett was originally a PA guy, and he did a PA for the Notting Girl Festival, and he went round seeing all the... the, the sta- looked at the stage and said, oh, fucking hell, I can do better than that. And... Um, Roger had amazing energy. He drove that firm along. And, and, and I don't know, we, we work with his son. Um, but uh, uh, what's Roger doing now? Did he, did I'm, I'm not sure exactly. Did he sell out Star Hire? Well, I remember Tom saying to me, I said, so how come Star Hire don't have any PA anymore? Because they used to have loads of PA. Yeah, used to yeah I remember. Turbo sound. And he said... I think his dad got fed up of if yeah. you if you spent a load of money on some speakers, yeah. three years down the line, someone would say, "Well, I don't want your speakers; they're old. I want these new ones." Yeah, that's so because of musicians, I would suggest. And and it was a it's a fashion. It was a race yeah. to to keep up. And he said, "The thing about staging, that's going to be good for ten years until it's condemned." <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. So he said it doesn't go out of fashion as quickly. Yeah, and he, he ran it to a very big level as well, Roger. Um, and and it's it's just spot on, amazing energy, Roger. Uh, he he went into you know we had lots of involved because I was part of promotional teams for things like Heaton Park, and I think he bought his first fencing system for gigs because we were running a gig, and then the promoter. And, knocked him <laughs> after something like a 
I don't know, a £50,000 spend. And this thing, when a PA company uses a particular type of box system or whatever, it becomes like the hot fashion for them. Mm. And so it gets bought on its name, whether it's uh, better or not, but it just becomes a fashion for like three years. Then you have to buy another brand. Well, um, thank you for... Uh, no, for I, so I hope you got a result. Yeah, I think... It, it is interesting, staring into this past, and it looks so foggy, doesn't it? And oh, Did people really live like that? <laughs> you know, musicians carrying all their PA in. You think, did people get away with doing gigs like that? And people did get away with doing gigs like that, because that was the only way to do a gig. Yeah, and everybody enjoyed them. Yeah. You know, if you ask old people what were their favourite gigs... Uh, you might be able to do some research and find out that the gigs were fucking shite. But uh, an audience sometimes doesn't know. Uh, and, and if the audience enjoy what they've paid for, what, what else should be important? Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, thank you very much. My, oh, my pleasure. It's been a gift to speak with Bruce. He started gigging when the PA was a single speaker on top of an upright piano and is still involved with the technical and performance side of large and small shows at the age of 80. I look forward to bumping into him at a festival soon. Thanks for listening. And if you like this podcast, please like, review or subscribe. And if you're feeling generous, you can do all three. Thank you. History of Life Sound is presented by me, Chris Snow executive producer at Spare Women and is a bandwidth production.